Let us first read the Word of God. We'll read tonight from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. When I started prepping for this sermon, I wasn't sure what I was going to say because there's just so much you can say about a text like this. Uh, what we have here is a divinely inspired narrative of the arrival of the uncreated Son of God into our world, the one who's not bound by space or time, the omnipresent, eternal second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and becomes a human babe. This God, Paul says about him in Acts 17, that he's the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, who doesn't live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. This same God now dwells in a 50-centimeter-long human body that needs Mary to provide it with warmth, food, and care. How do you preach on this wonder? In 1745, there was a famous hymn writer, Charles Wesley. Apparently, he was considering the same passage of Scripture when he penned these words. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. 
Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Do you see what Wesley did here? He's not preaching on it. He's saying that God reveals to us His incomprehensible person and incomprehensible works so that we are moved to praise and worship. And as I read the text over and over to prepare, I was brought to the same place. Above all else, all I wanted to do is worship. So if this sermon does nothing else, let it be an invitation to worship the God who is all-wise, all-powerful, and a perfectly faithful covenant Lord, because all of these divine attributes, all of these perfections are put on display for us in the incarnation of Jesus so we can worship truly. Our passage tonight naturally splits into two sections. The f- first, we have verses 1 through 7, and then verses 8 through 21. The first section describes the immediate circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. And in it, we see him as the unrecognized and the rejected king. In the second, we have the announcement and the celebration of his birth. So let's look at the first seven verses together and see how the king was unrecognized and rejected. When you hear the phrase, once upon a time, what do you think of? Do you think of history or of a fairy tale? I'd say a fairy tale, right? This is why the Bible never uses such words. Biblical narratives are not fairy tales. The Bible never says once upon a time. The Gospels, all four of them, are biographies of Jesus, and they supply verifiable historical context and details. And Luke is known for doing this, as we shall see as we proceed. Luke starts by telling us about a major event that took place in those days when Jesus was about to be born. Caesar Augustus had ordered a census. Everyone needed to be registered and accounted for in order to effectively collect taxes. There was a clear hierarchy of authority in the Roman-controlled territories, including Galilee and Judea. The average man answered to the local authorities, who in turn answered either to the Roman-appointed local king, such as the able Herod the Great, who ruled Judea as friend and ally of the Roman Empire, or they answered to an appointed Roman governor, such as Quirinius, another historical figure who's mentioned here as governor of Syria. And finally, the king or governor answered to the emperor. Caesar Augustus. This was a top-down world where Augustus had absolute power. He gave marching orders to everybody and received his from nobody. Augustus was not just the absolute ruler of the Roman Empire, he was also its savior. Here is what one commentator said. In the century before Christ, before Christ was born, the evidences of disintegration were so palpable in wars, in the passing of the old order, and in moral corruption that the thoughtful feared early collapse. From this disaster, the Mediterranean basin was saved by Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar. But we must note that the Principia devised by Augustus did not cure but only temporarily halted the course of the disease from which Greco-Roman culture was suffering. This same commentator 
goes on to say that Augustus and his successors had not solved the basic problems of the Mediterranean world. They had obscured them. They covered them. For what appeared to be a failure in government, they had substituted more government, and government was not the answer. You see, Augustus was not really a savior. He only tried to be one, and only a political and economic savior at that. Neither was he truly absolute in his power, because if he were, he would have been able to save the world he ruled. Only God is the true savior of the world, because only God is the true sovereign over the world. As a reader of the Bible, I look at the events described here in Luke 2, and I don't see Caesar running the world from the pinnacle of authority. I actually see two more levels of hierarchy above Caesar. Caesar Augustus here was receiving his marching orders from a man who was then long dead, named Micah. In all likelihood, Caesar had never heard of this Micah, nor would he have cared to know who he was. But this obscure man was a prophet who spoke the word of the Lord God Omnipotent, who rules over Israel, over Rome, over emperors and shepherds, over men and angels, and over the natural and the supernatural. He does this to bring to pass his unfailing counsel. So nearly 700 years before these events, this little-known Hebrew prophet said this. This is in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah's words are a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. They are a glimpse behind the divine veil. In eternity past, a decree went out from God that His Son would take on flesh and be born of a virgin in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. What can heaven and earth do but obey? Indeed, what can the powerful Caesar Augustus do but carry out the will of the truly august one? Just take a moment to think about the magnitude of this decree and what it did to the Roman world. Imagine the thousands of travelers all over the Roman Empire, completely unaware that their journey is part of a divine scheme to save the world. God is sovereign over the world, whether the world knows it or not, and God is planning to save it. So the human decree serves the, the divine decree. Everyone goes to be registered, and verse 4 tells us that Joseph left his town of residence, Nazareth of Galilee, to go to his ancestral town, Bethlehem of Judea. And although he was not required by Roman law to take Mary with him, he did so because she was nearing her time of giving birth. You see, God did not only decree what would come to pass and where it would come to pass, but also when it would come to pass. Caesar's decree had to be issued at the right time for the Roman administrative machine to get the orders delivered to the various territories and for those orders to be carried out and for Joseph to travel with pregnant Mary these some 150 kilometers um, between the two towns 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And although we're not told in the text, it's not a stretch to imagine that there were frequent stops because of Mary's condition and maybe even delays and obstacles. And it all served this one person, uh, sorry, this one purpose, that when Mary gives birth to Jesus, she's in Bethlehem, the city of David, not in Nazareth or anywhere else. It is this reality that Paul describes in Galatians 4 when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when you read verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, you're not reading about a happy coincidence. You're not, look, you're not looking at something that happened haphazardly. What you're looking at is the mighty hand of the Lord arranging the world, pulling all its threads of place, time, and people for His Son to enter the world as its true King and Savior. This is a great God who can really save. But the Son of God, the Savior King, is not yet recognized as such. Luke, who's careful to remind us in verse 5 that up to that point, Mary was Joseph's betrothed, and that their marriage had not yet been consummated, also carefully points out in verse 7 that Jesus was her firstborn in fulfillment of what was told to her by Gabriel in chapter 1. But it also makes it clear that this child was not your average king, because she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, the arrival of Jesus was not only unaccompanied by any earthly pomp and circumstance that you would expect when any king is born, it was marked by rejection. Although we're not explicitly told that anyone rejected Jesus in this passage, but if one is a rightful king, then not, recognized him, not recognizing him as such is the same as rejecting him. The fact that there was no place for them in the end may sound like a matter of coincidence. And we might be tempted to think, of course there was no place at the end. With all these people traveling, how do you expect room for them? But can you imagine if that traveling pregnant woman had been Caesar's wife? Can you imagine what would the innkeeper or what would the entire town of Bethlehem have done? in order to arrange proper accommodation for her and for her unborn child. The world looked at pregnant Mary and saw nothing special. And its mercy would only provide a manger, a trough for feeding animals for the child to be laid in it when born. On the other hand, can you imagine the God who arranged all this being unable to arrange lodging for Mary and Joseph? God who's sovereign over even the blindness and rejection of men planned for Jesus to be born at a place where they kept animals because he was pointing forward to the near future of Jesus. The Son of God had arrived into the world to be the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of his people. From there, Luke's, Luke takes us to a very different scene where we see the king recognized and celebrated. And this is 
what we see in the remainder of this passage. You see, even if on the arrival of Jesus, the night is strangely silent, it shouldn't have been silent, right? And if the earth won't receive her king, heaven can only celebrate him and call his people to join in the joy of heaven. In this familiar scene, we see a group of unsuspecting shepherds somewhere near Bethlehem tending their flocks, and out of nowhere, Luke tells us, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Imagine someone knocking at your door at 2 a.m. You walk to your door half awake, half asleep, and when you open your eyes, finally, you get to the door, you open your eyes, you try, and you open the door, and once you open it, you immediately recognize the president's spokesperson at your doorstep. And behind him, you see official vehicles, and there are lights and sirens filling the atmosphere. Would you casually ask, what can I do for you? I know how I would feel. I'd panic. Why would the president even know that I exist, let alone send a personal messenger to me? What have I done? What would become of me? Angels have often appeared in Bible narratives to carry out God's judgment. The shepherds had really good reason to be frightened. But this angel was no destroyer. He was a herald angel, a messenger from the faithful Lord to his downtrodden people. And the first thing he says is the most common prohibition in such a situation. He says, fear not. Why? because he brings good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We're all too familiar with what he has to say next in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Why is the birth of Jesus good news? Because he is the long-awaited Messiah, which Luke translates here as Christ, who is the Savior and the Lord of his people. The birth of Jesus is only good news because He is the Savior. Listen to what Paul calls good news in another familiar passage. This is 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that is the good news, I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first important what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul then goes on to mention some of the appearances of Jesus, of Jesus after the resurrection as proof it really happened. You will notice that what Paul includes as elements of the gospel are Jesus' death burial, and resurrection. Christ is our Savior, and this narrative is good news only because He died in our place to atone for our sins. His birth by itself is not good news, if told apart from from His substitutionary death and His necessary resurrection. So, as you tell the Christmas story this year, again, as you tell it to your children, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, 
Tell the full story. Don't settle for, for the short version. Bring them the full gospel. Christ was born, yes, but He was born to be a Savior who died on the cross for their sins. Don't let Christmas be reduced to cultural festivities, but invite your neighbor to join in the great joy that is for all the people of God by repenting of their sins and receiving Christ as their Savior and Lord. Friend, if, if you have never come to Christ in repentance, what are you waiting for? How many Christmases and Easter's have passed? How many times have you heard those words? You may not get another chance. You may not live to see another Christmas or even live to see tomorrow. Don't think you're too young or too old to repent. For what does the Scripture say? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It also says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, not later. Today, not tomorrow. The second half of the angel's message sounds incredibly anticlimactic. He goes from saying words like good news and great joy and David and Savior and Christ and Lord, all the words that have the ring of majesty and greatness and power, he goes from that to saying, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. How do you put these two parts together? This description of baby Jesus is anything but majestic or powerful. It is a picture of abject poverty and complete helplessness. And sometimes we miss this. Sometimes familiarity can blind us to the glaring contrasts in what we read. It can blind us to the amazing work of God that is revealed to us. If anything, I want to read these words and be like those shepherds who received this strange heavenly message of a Savior born in weakness and said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I want to be the kind of Christian who believes God's Word over against common sense, historic precedence, or sensory experience, what I see and what I hear and what I touch. As a matter of fact, there really is no other kind of Christian. Only by being like this, by believing God's Word over anything else, can one be saved, can one live well and be happy. Here is an example by contrast. In 2 Kings 6 and 7, in the days of the prophet Elisha, we read of the Syrian army laying siege to Samaria and starving it. The famine was so severe that donkey heads became a delicacy, a sort of a caviar of the time. People could barely afford dove dung to eat. I will not even mention the other terrible things because there's young kids in the service. But the famine was terrible. It was really bad. And in the midst of this hopeless situation, Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a 
that is a large measure, about seven liters, a seah of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. There's going to be so much food, and it's going to be so cheap, everyone will be able to afford it. There will be no famine tomorrow. Unbelievable, isn't it? Nothing in the current circumstances said that this is even remotely possible. We then read that the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. This man was effectively saying, what is God going to do? Make windows in the sky and drop food on Samaria? Let's get real here. What my eyes see, what history teaches me, what every person with an ounce of common sense knows, this cannot be done. Well, that same evening, the Lord scared the Syrian army and they fled and left behind all the food, all the animals, all the clothes, and all the gold that was in their camp. And four lepers, four outcast men, found out and proclaimed the good news in Samaria. And then we read this. The people of Samaria went out and plundered the, camps, the camp of the Syrians. So a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two sayas of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. The end of this account leaves us in no doubt that everything happened according to the word of the Lord. Those who believed its promises received salvation, and those who did not believe it, for whatever reason, received damnation. The shepherds of Bethlehem weren't concerned about how the, Lord of the, Lord, the word of the Lord will come to pass, how this weak baby will save anybody. They knew what King David knew when he prayed, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. That's all they needed to know. If he is God, then what he says must be true. As we move on with Luke's narrative, we finally see that salvation and praise go hand in hand. We read in this passage twice of praise, once of the praise of heaven and another of the praise of earth. So we read in verses 13 and 14, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Heaven never celebrated the birth of a king or a Caesar, because no king or Caesar can bring glory to God in the highest, nor peace to men on earth. They can't, but Jesus does both. Here's how. God is glorified in the incarnation because it proves His faithfulness. In tonight's reading, we heard the words of 2 Samuel 7, where God made the promise to David, but that was not the only promise. God promised Eve that her seed will destroy Satan. He promised Abraham that his offspring will bring blessing to all the nations. 
He promised his people that his suffering servant will atone for their sins. And he promised David that a child from his line will be king over Israel and the world forever. Jesus is all of this. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. This is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The incarnation brings glory to God. But Jesus also brings peace to God's people. Those with whom God is pleased. Notice it's not just peace to men. No. It is peace to those with whom God is pleased, peace to God's people. He first brings, brings them peace with God at the cost of his own life. He brings them inner peace in the face of the uncertainties of life, knowing that their greatest problem, God's wrath, has been finally and fully dealt with. And Jesus brings his people relational peace with one another, as members of the family of God and subjects of His kingdom. And finally, He will do what all Caesars and kings could not. When He one day returns in power and majesty and bring peace to all of the earth, but only His people will enter into His kingdom when it's finally established. How worthy is Jesus of praise this praise of heaven is echoed in the praise of the humble shepherds who returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. They praised precisely because it was all as it had been told them. God was faithful to His Word. It is coming to pass. It is no wonder that Luke is careful to tell us that the child was given the name Jesus, as God had commanded by the angel. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Father, we have no words of praise that are enough for what you have done for your people through your son Jesus. We have no words of praise that are enough for bringing us into this mystery the mystery of God becoming man, of taking on flesh, of becoming one of us, of dying for our sins, and of justifying us who believe in Him. Thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus. May we be a church that lives in the light of the incarnation and that goes out and tells everyone that Jesus was born and died for their sins. In His powerful, mighty, saving name we pray. Amen.